Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products. Just for being a Getting In listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to www.audible.com college. From Slate and Panoply, this is Getting In, a podcast series about the path to college. I'm your host, Julie Lifcott-Hames. Today, we're going to talk once again about that new Harvard report called Turning the Tide that proposes sweeping changes to college admissions. But this time, we're going to talk about some backlash to the report. It's been out for about a month, and some people don't think it's such a great idea. So we're going to talk about that, and we're going to answer more of your questions. I'm thrilled that today I've got joining me Amy Young, one of our Getting In experts. Amy's the Director of College Counseling at Avenues, an independent school in New York City. Hi, Amy. Welcome back. Thanks, Julie. It's great to be here. Actually, before we get started talking about this Harvard report, we have some late-breaking news from one of our Getting In seniors, August Graves. August attends Nest Plus M, the New York City Public High School. August got an envelope from a college, and August's mom, Amy, recorded the moment she opened it. August's dad, Martin, was there, too. Right, we received a envelope that says, that says yes from Will Amit in Salem, Oregon. It says yes, we got your application. In case it means yes, we're in, we're recording this. We're so excited to review your application. Yes, to review your Oh my god! Yay! Yay! Oh my god! Congratulations! Into American school! I just got into an American school! Oh my god! This is so exciting! I can't believe it! It's like 10 people, I'm fine. No, no! This is so exciting! Congratulations, Pumpkin! Do you have anything else you want to say to the podcast? Um, <laughs> I'd like to thank. The I'd like to thank Academy. all the little people. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> We'd like to thank all the the people at the podcast for helping us along the way. Cool. Wow. Wow. I literally got some chills running up my arms as uh, they they proceeded to un. Uh, unpack that decision and open it and then hearing those responses. Wow, I can so imagine myself hopefully being there one day with my own kid. Whew, Amy, you hear oh, this kind of thing all the time. This the, oh, well, this is this is the best part. And what Willamette is a spectacular, spectacular choice. She's going to love Oregon if that's where she ultimately ends up. It fits in so well with her interest in environmental studies. That's just that is spectacular news. August, congratulations. We are so happy for you. You did it. We knew you could and we knew you would. We know you're waiting to hear from several more schools this spring, but this is huge. Congratulations from all of us here. Amy, let's talk about Willamette for a bit. What can you tell us? So having lived in Portland, Oregon for eight years of my life, I certainly know it well. Um, it's a wonderful school. And as I said, I think it's it's a great match for August in terms of her academic interest. It's going to give her access to all the beauty and the environment of Oregon and access to Portland. Um, so I think I think it's a great choice for her. We don't we don't know where it sits on her list in terms of her preferences. But congratulations. I want to pass my congratulations along to August as well. 
Thanks, Amy, for that. My own son, who's a junior, is interested in attending school in the Pacific Northwest, mostly for the weather, I think. Uh, But with your good recommendation about Willamette and August's enthusiasm about it, I think it's probably a school I should um, ask him to take a, a strong look at. All right, let's shift gears a bit back to that report issued by the Harvard Graduate School of Education a few weeks back. It's called Turning the Tide, Inspiring Concern for Others and the Common Good Through College Admissions. And it proposed radical changes to the admissions process. Most radically, it urged a turn away from stressful academics and testing and towards more community service, real community service, not the exotic community service experiences people in many communities feel the need to put together for their kids. Well, now that it's been out for a few weeks, there's been more criticism bubbling up. And a prominent opinion piece opposing the report appeared this past Sunday in the New York Times. It was written by Steve Cohen, a lawyer and college admissions expert. And just a small clarification, Cohen is the author of an admissions guide coincidentally called Getting In, which has no relationship to our podcast. So in the Times piece, Cohen lauds the Harvard Report's intentions and the genuine desire to see more authentic community engagement from applicants. However, he believes this won't level the playing field for disadvantaged and poor students in the way colleges want. Cohen thinks students with more resources will absolutely find ways to game this new system as they're gaming the current system. So, Amy, did you read the report and the subsequent criticism? I've, I've certainly, I haven't read the entire report. I've certainly read the gist of the report, um, and I have read Steve Cohen's article, yes. Okay, so what do you think? You know, I, I think this issue is really complicated. I mean, that's an obvious statement, but I think it also is sort of intersecting with a wider conversation that's happening this year about college admissions, about affordability, about access. So I think there's a good debate to be had here with regard to Cohen's argument that this is just another way to game the system. I think you can say that about a lot of things in terms of college admissions. And I think we have to ground ourselves in the argument that we want kids to be doing things that help them learn. We want kids to be doing things that help them grow that develop their sense of connection and empathy to the world around them. And community service is an important way to do that. But it does, you know, it it is a slippery slope, right? Just like we want students doing things that develop their academics and develop their community service, these are things that all ultimately can be bought, right? Just like standardized testing can be bought, just like a good education can be bought. But that doesn't mean that they aren't valuable. Um, The thing that concerns me most is that within the Harvard report, one of the things that they are encouraging applications and college admissions to make note of is when students are devoting a significant amount of their time to work, right? These are students who need to work to contribute to their families for whatever reason. These are students who might have significant domestic responsibilities whether it's because their parents work nights and so they are primarily responsible for childcare for their younger siblings or making dinner or doing shopping for the home or things like this, that those are things that are very difficult for students to express in the application. And even when there are spaces to do that, students often think that they shouldn't be putting that sort of information in there. They don't have permission to do that. And it's when you have really strong college counselors like Josh, who contributes to this podcast as well, that allows them to do that, or college counselors who can explain that, colleges can pay attention. So for me, in many ways, I would like to see 
more students have access to strong college counseling, have strong access to guidance and mentorship with regard to their applications, because there are ways to communicate that. And I genuinely believe that when colleges have all the information, they make good decisions with it. I'm not entirely sure that just sort of a writ large mandate is the way to go. I would much rather see greater intervention with individual students. Yeah. You know, this notion of gaming the system, oh, God, it sickens me. You know, it's it's who our kids are authentically, their, their authentic self. Who am I? What do I care about? That should drive the community service choices they make. You know, not what does some college value by way of community service. It's just we've gotten it backwards. It is entirely backwards. It's not how can we package this kid so they're attractive to some college. It's who is this kid and which college is the right college for this kid. But this is exactly the heart of the issue, I think, because even gaming the system is relative. So for someone who is not an exceptional athlete, they feel like those athletes have gained the system because they're getting admitted to these schools with sometimes, not in all cases certainly, but sometimes slightly weaker academic profiles, sometimes significantly weaker academic profiles. But those kids have followed their passion and followed their talent. And yet, if you're stepping back from it and you're a kid who has done all the academic work, that doesn't seem like a merit-based decision, right? Unless a college values athleticism as, um, you you know, a, a valuable thing, which many colleges do. And they say, you're fantastic in athletics and you are good enough when it comes to academics, not one of our strongest students academically, but we value the contributions you're going to make to the to our campus and to our society as an athlete. But it doesn't feel like that to the kid. Who's just academic. Who's looking at the kid sitting next to them in their class, who has excelled academically and doesn't have that athletic piece, right? All I'm saying is it's relative, right? And I think that how we define merit is different for every school. It's different for every kid. And many kids who are following their authentic path are not always getting the rewards that they feel like they might deserve. It just gets really complicated because you can say to kids, here, do your community service because it matters to you. And then the kid next to you who's doing something that maybe just matters to their parents, um, but it gets them into the school that they really want to go to and is a good fit for them, right? Just because you've gained the system doesn't mean you don't end up at a school that's a good fit for you, which I guess all this does is complicate the process. But I do think it's misleading to think that this process is entirely merit-based because it ends up feeling like a lie to a lot of kids. And I think something that we struggle with as college counselors is not to tell kids this is a, this is a, a merit-based process and you should be your authentic self as much as to make sense, help make sense of when decisions don't turn out that way, because they don't always. Yeah. You know, I think also missing from Cohn's piece was a deeper consideration of the report's recommendation that the number of APs a student should be expected to take ought to be reduced a little. The number of activities ought to be reduced a little. I mean, this is where the arms race is at its most potent. Agreed. And I think the piece that I really that I would really like to see, I would really like colleges to stand up and disavow the rankings because so much of where this comes from is reinforced by the rankings and it makes it so difficult for colleges to extract themselves from it. I mean, you can look at the, the average SAT scores of the most selective Ivy institutions 
20 years ago, and they are significantly lower, right? right. They didn't have to report things out in the same way mm-hmm. in 1989, right? <laughs> and if I, in fact, I'm actually not sure when U.S. News and World Report started. I probably should know. But it certainly didn't have the same, um, you know, cultural weight that it does now. And if we could dial all of that back and say, listen, you don't need to look for the highest test scores so that you can report out to the rankings. You don't need to look for the highest test scores so you can get the best bond rating. You just need to look for great kids. That would be an enormous step forward, which would actually be a step backward, but an enormous step forward. I completely agree with you. And I applaud the schools that have been brave enough to say, you know, to hell with the rankings. Um, Schools like Sarah Lawrence, schools like Reed, um, they've taken the hit. You know, if if they don't report your SAT scores or you opt out entirely, U.S. News will, you know, make sure you pay for that. But who decided U.S. News and World Report is in charge? Amen. I mean, <laughs> seriously. And, and I think the benefit of turning the tide, essentially, it's a collective response. It, I think, acknowledges that it's pretty hard for a school to be the first to say, you know what, we're not going to buy into the rankings. But if 80 schools simultaneously can do it, then they've got that collective power to stand up to this incredibly large hegemony, you know, which is the U.S. News rankings. This is an inadequate way to assess the quality of a college education. Colleges are perversely incentivized to do the things they must do in order to increase their rankings in U.S. News. I mean, Let's speak also to the fact that what colleges need to do to increase their selectivity to to rise in the rankings is to email the heck out of juniors and sophomores and seniors in response to those kids' PSAT and SAT and ACT scores. I know because my kid's now getting those emails. It is ludicrous. It's like each school thinks they're individually communicating to him, but he gets the same damn email from a slew of schools, slightly customized to be from that school. And I know they're expecting a response from him to demonstrate interest, quote unquote. My kid is, you know, it's like an avalanche of junk mail from colleges. They don't care about him. You know, they've decided he fits some demographic. He did well on a score. Great. You know, they want him. Do they really want him? No. I'm dealing with my kid who's like, what do I do with this? You know, and I think I know more than most parents in this regard, and I'm overwhelmed. Oh. <sighs> You know, it's this is exactly this is what it is to be in the middle of this process. This and this is what we we help parents and students as college counselors. This is what we help them navigate. Is this immense immediate ratcheting up of anxiety and not knowing what to do and feeling overwhelmed and underwater and feeling like the stakes are so incredibly high. Um, Julie, you're absolutely right. These early emails, students do not need to reply to them. You know, if they are not going to end up submitting an application, it won't matter if they demonstrated interest. And once they do submit applications, I promise you they will get plenty more emails to open (laughs) where they can demonstrate their interest. So please let those emails go. All right. Now it's time for more listener questions. We got this voicemail from a mom in Tennessee. Hey, this is Ann from Nashville, Tennessee. My daughter is a junior and is looking at competitive colleges. However, she is also on a soccer team and high school soccer for girls is in the fall. So her team practices all summer, both formally and informally. She won't be able to do any of the college uh, programs and academic things next summer. And I'm wondering if colleges take this into account and also how do we convey that on her application? Thank you. 
Amy, a common concern for any competitive athlete. What do you think Anne's daughter should aim to do this summer? Well, I think obviously she loves soccer and may be quite good at it. So that sounds like something she should be doing, particularly if if she is looking to be a recruited athlete. And we don't know that based on on the message. Then she is sort of basically choosing to double down on on her athletics for her college application because that that summer is really important. I think I would I think I would say are there other things that she might be doing that could also link up with what what she's passionate about. So again, are there programs where she is teaching soccer to under-resourced communities in the area because that's probably an extension of what she loves? These programs are obviously very intensive, so it's not like she can go away. It sounds like that's what, what the mother is saying, go away to some of these college programs, which I think is fine. You don't need to go away to college programs over the summer, but I think she could look around where she lives and see if there are other things she might want to be involved in. We always encourage students to spend their summers doing things they're passionate about, that they're that are interesting. We want them to get some rest and restore themselves before the intensity of senior year. But I also really encourage students to do a variety of things um, because when they get to college, they'll be doing a variety of things. So if there are other things that interest her, I would encourage her to look for those over the summer. My guess is she isn't doing soccer every day of that summer. So I'm I'm just wondering what other things she might be interested in. Okay, thanks. All right, up next, we got this voice memo from Leopold, a high school student in Germany. I'm currently a junior at a German-American high school in Berlin. As I skip two grades, I will only turn 16 until a couple of months after graduation. I'm very interested in attending a U.S. college, but worried about my young age. Next to considerations about fit and maturity for such a step, does my young age influence college admissions? Thank you. I've got to share a funny story. Ah, when I was at Stanford, we um, admitted somebody without realizing that she was 14. She had done so many things. Um, It was just impossible to think she wasn't uh, older. And uh, we did realize it before she actually enrolled. But we had to ask ourselves, can a 14-year-old live in a residential environment with 17 and 18-year-olds? And ultimately, we figured that out. But it was through an interview with the kid and her parents to really get at her maturity level. It was obvious that academically, she had had an impressive preparation and was an extraordinarily unique student for her young age. Um, But we had to ask those questions around, you know, maturity and fit. My sense is that's um, not going to be a concern at all for a 16-year-old. But Amy, what's your experience with that? Um, Sometimes, and Julie, you might know better than I would, sometimes 16 can still be young for residential life. And some colleges might even have some restrictions on that in terms of a student's age for them to live in the dormitories. But they are going to be looking for a student to have the social as well as the social maturity as well as the academic ability to succeed in those environments. This sounds like a very mature, very articulate young man on the phone. So I would certainly I would certainly be encouraging him to look at U.S. colleges. Um, I wouldn't be discouraging him from that at all. And I think colleges will be very interested in his achievements at his young age. Yeah, I agree with that. And we've got this email from Emily Puro, a mother in Oregon. You suggested families of juniors plan to visit colleges during spring break. We were thinking about visiting a handful of universities in Oregon and Washington during our son's spring break, but it seems that most of the universities we're interested in are on break the same week. Do you see that as a problem? Isn't it better to visit when classes are in session? Would visiting during summer session be a better option for us? Thanks so much for your thoughts and for the extremely helpful and informative podcast. Amy, what do you think? 
I think you have to start somewhere. Um, and if, if spring break means that you're going when colleges aren't in session, I don't think those are wasted trips, particularly for students who haven't been on a range of campuses before. If you don't know what a smaller liberal arts school looks like, if you don't know what a large public institution looks like and feels like, I think you still need to get out there and start that process. Um, usually there's always something that is less than ideal. Maybe you're there at the perfect time of year in terms of when you can visit classes and things like that, but it's a rainy day, so you don't get the full the full effect of what that college might be like. So I think you just have to jump in and get started. Most likely, if your student is interested in applying somewhere early decision or if it rises to the top of an applicant list, then you'll probably be going back for another visit anyway. But I would say get started. Start learning about things. Start learning what col- how colleges are presenting themselves, what it means to go on a tour. Start gathering your list of questions that you might want to ask at various schools. So please get started. Yeah, I'd add, you know, just because it's spring break doesn't mean the admissions office is closed. The admissions office will be open. They're going to put on that info session. They'll be happy to answer your questions. You'll go on a campus tour. You'll just have far fewer students to interact with, and you won't be able to take a class. But there will be students there. It's not like winter break when um, often the entire campus is you know, literally closed or effectively closed. Spring break, there'll still be students around. So it's going to be on you to reach out to them. I always recommend that when students are visiting a campus, find students who are not giving you the tour, who are not paid by the institution to provide information and answers. When you see someone who seems to be 18 to 22 years old, pull them aside and say, hey, are you a student here? Yes, great. I'm thinking of applying here or I'm thinking about this place. What do you like about it? What would you change? Those are the two questions I recommend asking. And I'd ask that of three students and begin to aggregate that information, gives you a sense of the vibe of the place, how students really feel about it, and so on. And I would certainly say, do not miss your own high school classes just to go visiting colleges. So this is why spring break, even though it does align with the spring breaks of the colleges you're visiting, this is why spring break is the essential time to go. Summer, I think, tends to be really dead on many campuses. In fact, many campuses are filled with visitors from high school doing anything from a cheerleading camp to a basketball camp to a science camp. And you'd really be interacting with people who are not actually the college students who go there. All right. Well, Amy, gee whiz, we've talked about a lot today, and I appreciate your thoughtfulness, your wisdom, your candor. You're right there on the front lines working with with young people. I, I admire that so much. I really appreciate that you've taken time to be with us on the podcast today. Thank you, Julie. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed for your spring break tour with your son. (laughs) Thanks a lot. And thanks to our listeners for your excellent questions. Later this month, we'll be taping episodes about financial aid and scholarships. So please send us your questions on those topics so we can include them in the show. Here are all the ways you can reach us. We're on Twitter at gettinginpod. That's all one word, gettinginpod. You can send an email or voice memo to our email address. That's gettingin at slate.com. And I'm going to actually put in a plug for those voice voice memos or voicemails, which you can send to our hotline. I'll give you that number in a minute. The point is, we like hearing your actual voice. We really do. It makes a difference somehow. So please consider that option. Our hotline number is 929-999-4353. And thanks for continuing to comment about this podcast on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show. One iTunes reviewer wrote recently, I would recommend this podcast even if you can't afford to hire a college counselor. In fact, I'd listen to all the episodes before you hire anyone. You may feel you can handle it on your own after listening. Wow. Thank you for that comment. I myself have learned a tremendous amount from our experts here on the podcast, and I have to say it's given me a lot more confidence and security about 
the sense that, I don't know, that I can somehow get through this with my own two kids. So amen to the experts on our podcast making a difference in the lives of kids and families. Getting In is a production of Slate and Panoply Media. Michelle Siegel is our producer. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. And Panoply's chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Julie Lifcott-Hames. And remember, it's not just about getting in somewhere everybody's talking about. It's about finding the right fit. Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks. You can download them and access them on a bunch of different devices like iPhones, Android, Kindle, or pretty much any other MP3 player. One book to try out from Audible is Presence, bringing your boldest self to your biggest challenges. Author Amy Cuddy uses research and real-life stories to illustrate how we can all flourish during the stressful moments that usually terrify us dare I say, like college admissions. If you want to listen to Presence or many other books, Audible has it. With more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products, you'll find what you're looking for. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audible.com college and use the promo code college.